It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 871 for the 1st of March, 2024. This week, a hijacked Facebook account can be a lot of fun, but only if you have a most peculiar understanding of the term fun. It wasn't my account, but I had to deal with the repercussions of a hack recently. In short circuits, the technology that powers GPS, Bluetooth devices, and other modern high technology was invented 83 years ago by someone considered to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Even now, she doesn't get the recognition she deserved in 1941. Ever notice how technology someone doesn't understand, doesn't like, or fears is labeled bloatware? That's the term being used with AI today, along with a fair amount of faulty logic. It was an afternoon pretty much like any other when I received a message from one of my elder daughter's high school friends. Hi, Mr. Blinn, the message said. I think Liz's Facebook profile was hacked and someone is pretending to sell things on your behalf. Could you please let her know I don't have her sell? Well, oddly enough, I had just been having what appeared to be a conversation with Elizabeth. She was asking if I could loan her $300 until the next day. There were clues in the messages... Lots of them, in fact, that a scam was afoot, but I missed them all, every single one of them. The messages had come from Elizabeth's messenger account because I could see previous discussions. But then Phyllis brought her phone to me. She had received a similar message, actually the exact same message. And we got a copy of a post that Elizabeth had made in Facebook. She was offering about 25 items, including a big screen TV, furniture, a golf cart, and a riding lawnmower for sale because, according to the post, we are clearing out items from my dad's house. He got moved to aged care, and he is no longer in need of these items and is glad to have the extra money for other expenses on coming holidays. We have a truck and can deliver at a small extra fee. Send a direct message if interested in any item. Hmm. A request to share the message had been added, and then comments had been disabled so it would be impossible to add a comment calling out the scam. Well, then the penny, the obvious penny, dropped. Suddenly it was obvious that it was a scam and that someone had taken over her account. The clues were obvious, and I should have recognized them immediately. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll see where I've called out myself for missing the clues I should have seen. Starting with grammar. Can you borrow me some dollars until tomorrow morning? I will get back for you. Well, that's not something written by a native speaker of English. But mixing up borrow and lend or loan is a common error for those who speak English as a second language. There was a missing quirk. The message requested $300 with the dollar sign in front of the number, but Elizabeth always places the dollar sign after the number, $300 sign. So this wasn't a message she had written. And there was a certain amount of illogic. 
I was trying to pay for something, the note said, without explaining what. So I want you to help me with 300 and I will pay you back with interest tomorrow morning. This time it was just the number 300, no dollar sign in sight on either side, but there was also that offer to repay with interest the following day. Now, who offers to pay interest on a one-day loan, or borrow, from a parent or a close friend? Nobody. That's who. Well, I came to that realization just a little bit too late. Several people had reported the scam, and by the time we started trying to take back the Facebook account, Facebook had shut it down. Elizabeth couldn't sign into the account because her password has been changed. And when I found the expected warning from Facebook in her email and started the recovery process, we were completely out of luck. Facebook does have a procedure in place to give members a way to recover a stolen account, but it depends on a lot of things Elizabeth didn't have. She hadn't set up two-factor authentication, and her government ID card shows neither the name Facebook knows her as or the address where she was living years ago when she signed up. We tried working through the process described on Facebook's hacked page, as well as the Facebook account's recovery page. We expected the process to fail, and we were not disappointed. If something like this has happened to you, and you need a comprehensive summary of how you might be able to recover your account, Reason Labs has a good one. I have a link to Reason Labs on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So we set up a new account. Two bad things can happen to Facebook accounts. The account can be compromised. Some call this hacked or stolen, or it can be cloned. Recovering from a cloned account is relatively easy because the crook has only created a facsimile of your account, not really gained access to it. So which has happened to you? Elizabeth's account had not been cloned. It had been hacked. Someone had possession of it, and she was never going to get it back. So, which has happened to you? If your account has been hacked, someone has either gained access to your computer by installing malware, which is less likely, or has gained access to your Facebook account by tricking you into giving them your credentials, more likely. But the whole hacking thing is the less likely of the two possibilities. It's much easier to clone an account. All one needs to do is find an account that allows anyone to see their full list of friends. The cloner then creates a new account using your name and your photo and sends friend requests to some or all of your friends from that new account. Sometimes the cloner will steal some pictures from your account, but that doesn't always happen. So we wanted to protect the new account from both cloners and hackers. The most effective way to avoid having your account cloned is to simply make it less attractive to cloners by making it impossible for anyone but you to see your friends list. To make the friends list private, click the Facebook menu button. That's the down-pointing triangle you'll find in the upper right corner of the Facebook site. Then choose Settings and Privacy from the menu. Click Settings on the next menu. Then choose Privacy on the Settings page. And type Friends into the search box. Then click Who can see your friends list. At the very least, change the setting to Friends. But it's a lot safer if you choose Only Me. That is the single most important change you can make. It's the one that tells cloners they won't find much joy in your account. 
but there are some other steps you should consider. Return to the Settings and Privacy menu and click Privacy Checkup. Work through each of the menu items on the Privacy Checkup page. Read the descriptions and decide which safeguards you'd like to establish. Plan to spend some time on this, reading the explanations and considering the alternatives. Making your account undesirable to cloners will protect it. But you really want to avoid the nastiest of nasties, the ones who gain access to your account. Normally, this is done using social engineering that tricks you into giving scammers your username and password. We haven't figured out how somebody obtained Elizabeth's credentials. Probably we never will. Unfortunately, she used the same weak password for Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, and some financial accounts. So the first task was changing passwords for all those other accounts so that they would differ from each other, but would individually be strong. With that out of the way, we moved on to obtaining a password manager for her and setting up two-factor authentication whenever possible. Those are the best actions available to safeguard your Facebook account, too. Strong password, two-factor authentication, and a unique password for every account. I disagree with frequently heard recommendations to change passwords often. If you have a strong password and you don't share passwords between accounts, changing passwords moves far down the list. There are other tips, such as always logging out of Facebook when you're done, especially on public computers, not using public Wi-Fi hotspots unless you've enabled a VPN, enabling alerts for logins from new computers for all sites that support that option, and not ever clicking a link on a page in an email that says it wants to verify your account information. As usual, a little caution and well-advised paranoia go a long way in the battle toward maintaining control of your accounts and your money. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, Hedy Lamarr was without a doubt a beautiful and talented actor from a time when female actors were called actresses. She starred in a lot of films, was arrested a couple of times for shoplifting, and invented things in her spare time. One of the things she invented was called a secret communications system, and she filed a patent for it in June 1941 when World War II was underway in Europe, but the U.S. hadn't yet joined the battle. What the patent describes is a frequency-hopping communication system, and it was proposed as a way to make torpedoes more accurate. Today, we call the technique spread spectrum frequency hopping, and it's used in Bluetooth devices, mobile phones, and GPS systems. 1941 is 83 years in the past. If computers were being thought about at all back then, they were envisioned as devices that weighed 
tons and filled large rooms. During spare time on movie sets, Lamar sketched out ideas for better traffic signals, a tablet that could be dropped into water to create a fizzy drink, and systems intended to control torpedoes and sink Nazi ships. Back then, the German Navy was proficient at jamming radio signals that guided torpedoes, but Lamar suggested that a communications system that frequently changed from one frequency to another would be much harder to jam. That sounds simple, but it's a lot more complex in practice because both the sender and the receiver have to switch between frequencies at exactly the same time, and they have to do it apparently at random. The work was in vain for World War II, but the U.S. Navy did use the technology during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And today, just about everybody carries a bit of that technology around with them every day. You may have already heard this story. It's certainly not a secret, but Lamar was an actor, uh, sorry, actress in those days, and inventing isn't something motion picture stars are known for. Even though reports like this one do crop up every now and then, Hedy Lamar's contributions to modern technology still aren't as well known as they should be. Sometimes I'm amused by what earns the epithet bloatware. It seems that any computer technology somebody doesn't like, doesn't understand, or fears gets that label. The same term has been applied for at least a couple of decades to new features that Microsoft has added to Word and Excel. But how did all that bloatware get into Word and Excel? I don't dispute that these applications have many features that are really unnecessary, at least from my perspective. Those last three words are important, from my perspective. Those useless to me functions might well be very important to others. Should a word processor be able to create layouts with multiple columns and images? In my world, no. That's because these are publishing and layout functions better handled by applications such as InDesign or even Microsoft Publisher. But some users wanted to be able to create newsletters and such using a word processor. What is bloatware to one person is an essential feature for somebody else. It's not clear that anybody asked Microsoft to add AI features like Copilot to Windows, but it's a good bet that some users will like it and like it a lot. Speech recognition, autocorrect, predictive keyboard functions, these aren't new. Some of the technologies go back more than 20 years, but they're much better now than they were. That doesn't mean they're perfect, and it's still a trivial effort to locate and laugh at idiotic errors made by those functions. One pundit was promoting Bloaty Nosy AI, an application intended to remove AI apps. The problem is that using it may be more troublesome than just ignoring the AI apps. Ashwin, writing on ghacks.net, described it this way. Compared to regular programs, Bloaty Nosy AI is not a straightforward app as it does not have a normal interface with buttons that you can click to disable the bloat. Instead, you'll need to interact with it just as you would with an AI assistant. 
That's ironic, using an AI-powered app to remove an AI-powered app. Something like a 4D chess move. So, okay, you don't like AI, but you're willing to entrust AI with decisions about what is bloatware on your computer so that you can remove it. Really? That sounds a lot like walking into a Toyota dealership and asking why you shouldn't buy a Volkswagen. Or perhaps like asking the CEO of Exxon to explain why electric cars are better than those powered with gasoline. The influence of artificial intelligence is going to continue to expand, and the systems will become more useful in the coming weeks and months. If you're not a fan of AI, though, just don't use it. The concept of using AI to remove AI just seems so illogical. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>